Right, so if you, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, the first 13 verses of that chapter today. So this, starting in January, we've just been kind of chipping our way through this great book in the New Testament called Ephesians. So um, you can look, swipe on your phone if you'd like to. The verses will also be up on the screen. So if you want to put a banner over this passage and this message this morning, it's going to be one of the last phrases in our section, and it's the words, don't lose hope, or don't lose heart, my bad. Don't lose heart, all right? So that's going to be kind of the theme we're going to see here. And uh, let me just ask for a show of hands this morning. How many of you guys had a bad day this week? Like you just look back at your week, and there was definitely a bad day, okay? I've got, man, there's a lot up here bummed for you guys. So, <laughs> all right, so, um, but let me, and not to knock your bad day, but um, this is one of my all-time bad day readings that I've ever read. So um, there's going to be some bodily harm in this, and, but the person that's writing it kind of is poking some fun at it, so uh, we're going to laugh with him in this, okay? So this is a bricklayer's accident report. Like, this is an actual report written by a bricklayer about something that happened to him on a very bad day on the job. So he says, I'm writing in request, I'm writing to your request for additional information regarding how my recent injury occurred. In block number three of the accident report form, I put trying to do the job alone as the cause for my accident. But you said in your letter that I should explain more fully. So I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. So rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided, decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at the ground level, I went up to the roof, I swung the barrel out, and I loaded bricks into it. And then I went down to the ground, I untied the rope, and holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number two of the accident report that my weight is 135 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost presence of mind and I did not let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. Near the third floor, I met the barrel coming down fast. This explains the fractured skull and collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued up my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Unfortunately, at this time, I had regained my presence of mind, allowing me to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Now devoid of the bricks, the barrel then weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to the information in block number two. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. Near the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations on my leg and lower body. The encounter of the barrel slowed me down enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of bricks. Fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I lay in pain on the bricks, unable to stand up and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. The empty barrel weighed more than the rope, so it came down upon me and broke both my legs. 
I hope I've furnished the additional information you required on the accident report form. That's a bad day, would you say? Yeah, so we'll say that guy won. So, ouch. All right, so here's the deal. Like sometimes we might be tempted to think that if I follow Jesus or if I have God in my life and I'm just trying to like do what God wants me to do, then maybe I won't have any adversity. Maybe I won't have bad days. And so this passage this morning is going to kind of fly right in the face of that. Now, it definitely is an amazing advantage to face adversity with God, like with a relationship with God. I've heard that so many times over the years when people are, are sharing about something really hard they're going through, and then they will say something like, I cannot imagine facing this without God in my life. Like, that's for sure. But there, the fact that we have a relationship with God doesn't give us a pass from adversity. In fact, in some ways, adversity could be ramped up. And that's why this message, don't lose heart, is especially important for us this morning. Because I, I, I would love to have time to just sit down and just talk everybody one-on-one. Like, how are you doing? Like, what's going on? Like, what's the biggest adversity? What's the big challenge in your life? But this word, this passage this morning, I hope is going to be super helpful to you as it has been to me as I've been going through it. So let me say a prayer, and then we'll study these uh, 13 verses about not losing heart in the face of adversity. So let's pray. So God, I thank you um, that you are a good God and that you're a God that draws near to us when we go through hard times, that you're a God that can give us perspective in adversity. You can do amazing things in the, in the midst of adversity. So I pray that we would learn from Paul today as he just shares from his heart how did he not lose heart in the face of a very difficult time? So speak to us, comfort us if that's what we need today. Fire us up if that's what we need. But just speak to us straight from your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start in verse 1. And Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he, and then he pauses Okay, he pauses, and what we've got here is a 13-verse kind of tangent, okay, where if you look down, if you have your Bible open, and you look down at verse 14, Paul's going to start out like the same way, like for this reason, I, but it's like when he caught himself when he was saying verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, it's kind of like he had to catch that thought for a second and say, wait a minute, I, I need to unpack this a little bit for you guys. Like, you might be asking, like, you're a prisoner. What? Like, what did you do? Like, what are you in prison for? Or, wow, you're in prison. Wow, how, how are you doing with that, Paul? Because if you remember from past weeks, Paul's relationship with these people that he's writing to, the church in Ephesus, was a very close one. Like, these, these people loved Paul deeply. And so he realized he couldn't just say, well, I'm a prisoner for Christ. He's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to need to unpack this a little bit. And so from verse 2 down to verse 13, he, he un, unpacks this for us and really lets us into his heart about how's he doing. And so verse 13 is kind of like the, the other end of this little tangent, this little section. And verse 13 says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. All right? So, um, so here's the deal, what's going on. A little backstory for Paul. Uh, Paul started out his life as a, as a follower of the Jewish religion, like he was a scholar among Jews. And what is so interesting about Paul is that Paul was so devout, very zealous for the Jewish faith that he was practicing and studying, that he hated Christians, 
and he hated Gentiles. Like, and so what God did in Paul's life, though, is he completely flipped him. Like the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul, and, you know, and he said, you know, why are you persecuting me? And just totally changed the direction of his life. So now Paul is a Christian, loves Christians, and is trying to help Gentiles become Christians. Like it's a total switch of teams, okay? And so what that meant for Paul, though, was that throughout his ministry of trying to help people understand that they could follow Jesus and get all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ, he always had an opposition to him. And the opposition was his former team, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders, like just did not get what he was all about because they still hated Christians like Paul used to and hated Gentiles like Paul used to. And so, and so the reason he's in prison now is because he's been devoting his life to share about Jesus uh, with Gentiles. And the Jews have not liked that. And so, and so that's what's going on uh, for him. And so uh, this has led for Paul to about a four-year uh, trial of being in prison. So we heard from our swimmer earlier how frustrating it's been like to come to Iowa and want to swim, but injuries have kept her on the sideline. Imagine Paul, like his passion in life is to let people know about how awesome Jesus is and to make sure Gentiles know they can enjoy this faith, but he's been sidelined. He's been put in prison. And so it's not just that Paul's been on the sideline not getting to do what he loves to do, but his, his life has actually been on the line. Like he's still waiting, like is he going to live or die? Is he going to be released uh, or is he going to be persecuted uh, for his faith in Jesus? So that's what's going on. It's a time of intense adversity in Paul's life. So um, let me just bring us into this now. This isn't just a history lesson about Paul. Let's talk about all of us. But as you read through the Bible, um, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there are, and maybe there's many subsets you could break this down into, but there are three basic kinds of adversity that all of us could face, even as followers of Christ. Number one, there's just kind of a general adversity that comes from the fact that we live in a world that is broken. We live in a sinful world. So that's why, like, you can get sick. That's why our world now is coming to grips with this Wuhan virus. Um, our dog, uh, Bubba, we had to put him down last week. He got Lyme disease and just, like, boom, gone, you know. And, and then, obviously, in a church this size, there are many more, like, just hard stories that you guys have gone through, too, because we live in a sinful world. We live in a broken world. So there's that kind of adversity. There's also adversity that we face. It's kind of like adversity we bring on ourselves, you know? Like if I decide not to study for a semester, <laughs> I'm going to really struggle with finals, and my grades aren't going to look that good, right? Or if I've been harsh in my communication at home or with colleagues, like that can bring uh, some adversity and suffering on us. So there's those kind of sufferings. But then the third kind is one unique to a follower of Jesus, is it's simply because you identify with Jesus Christ in a world that's broken, in a world like we've talked about, is in many ways kind of drifting from God. You could get adversity just for that, just for identifying as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, Paul said in Philippians, there's actually four letters Paul wrote when he was in prison called the prison epistles. So Philippians was one of those. And in the book of Philippians, he said, for to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. In fact, Jesus told his followers, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. So there's just something about lining up with Jesus that could set us up for uh, some adversity. And so Paul sees 
that the reason he is in prison, he's being persecuted, is because of his allegiance to Jesus. He's passionate about Gentiles knowing they can believe in Jesus, and that's gotten him in trouble. So he's trying to say, I'm in prison for a purpose. I'm incarcerated for a cause. And so here's something else we need to know, that God, as you look throughout the Bible, God does some amazing work in the midst of adversity, okay? I see there's two things God does when his people go through adversity. Number one is that he draws really close to them. The Bible says God draws near to the brokenhearted. Kind of an interesting thing I've caught from people I've known uh, just even the last couple of months, people that have suffered deeply, either with something like cancer or a chronic physical deal or the loss of somebody super close to them, like intense grief. It's interesting, in a couple of different contexts, I've heard people that have walked through that kind of adversity say, uh, there is no way I would want to go back to the pain, you know, of taking chemo or of losing, you know, this person in my life. But in a strange way, something I do miss about those days is the intimacy that I felt with God. You know, the, the nearness I felt of God as I would just be sprawled on on my floor, just crying for mercy or crying for help. Those were profound days. And I've heard a couple of people just try to explain that. No, I hated what I was going through, but I love those moments of experiencing the presence of God. So in the, when God's people face adversity, God will draw near. But another thing that you would never maybe think of is that God uses that adversity for his glory. Like it isn't taking, you know, God isn't like drifting and maybe forgetting about you and all of a sudden seeing you're in adversity. Like there's a plan for that. Like in the midst of your adversity, God could have a plan that's exactly for you so that other people could be blessed, so that you could grow, others will be blessed, or that God will get the glory. So you look throughout the Bible, it's, it's rare to find a character in the Bible that did not face some kind of adversity. David, Goliath, Daniel, lion's den. And of course, the, the greatest is Jesus facing uh, the cross and totally innocent. Like the most unjust thing that's ever happened on the planet was when Jesus died on the cross. But you see what God did through that, the ultimate adversity was that Jesus defeated our two greatest adversaries, sin and death. So that now even when this life is over, we know that we have conquered death through, through Jesus. And so God, God does his best work in the face of of adversity. And so God can do a couple different things when we go through adversity. Number one is that he can uh, grow us through it. That's why the Bible says, count it joy when you, count it, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith uh, produces endurance. It could be good for others. So that's exactly what Paul is seeing. Like he's not, he's not, he knows he's in prison. He'd much rather be free and going out. But he knows he's there for a cause. He's there so that Gentiles would know who Jesus is. And so he's being persecuted for the good of others. And bottom line, God can get glory through our hard times. When we studied Philippians last year, and I don't expect you to remember a year ago sermon, like you probably don't even remember what I said the next day, right? But when we looked at Philippians last year, Paul was talking, he talked more openly about being in prison in that book. 
So I don't know if you remember, but there was this scenario in, in Philippians 1 where he was describing this elite guard called the Praetorian Guard. And as Paul's in prison, like they used to send different prisoners to be chained next to him to make sure he didn't escape or somebody didn't break him out. So they, they sent the elite guard there to guard him. But guess what Paul did like when he's sitting in prison? Like he didn't like complain about, oh, I have to be in prison. It's been four years now. Like he talked about Jesus. And so like every guard that's chained to Paul, it's like a captive audience for Paul, right? So he's telling them about Jesus. And so Paul says he was so excited that the whole Praetorian guard got to hear about Jesus. And in fact, there's another part in the book of Philippians that says that the gospel made inroads into the household of Caesar, you go, wait, how did that happen? Well, it's because the Praetorian Guard, the elite guard, didn't just guard prisoners like Paul, but they also guarded the household of Caesar. And so Paul, very likely, got the gospel into the household of Caesar by sitting in jail, talking to one prison guard at a time. So there's a profound example of Paul using his adversity for the good of others. And so it could be that that's what God's doing with us too, as we walk through adversity. There's an opportunity in that adversity for others to flourish because you're there. Others are watching you go through your adversity, and it's a great chance for you to put on display the hope that you have uh, in Jesus. So a great story about that I read this week. Uh, there was a couple who moved to the Philippines uh, to, to let people there know about Jesus. Uh, Martin and Grace Burnham. Martin was a pilot and used to fly supplies and medical supplies back to back areas of uh, remote uh, southern Philippines. In fact, he would also fly like patients to the hospital and those kind of things. Well, they were taken captive by Muslim extremists in May of 2001. They were held in captivity for 13 months. And in, in an attempt to allow them to escape, Martin was actually killed in a crossfire. But Grace, his wife, survived and tells the story of those 13 months. And to her shame, and again, I can't shame her for this, but to her shame, she regrets in those first couple months, she had a lot of hatred and animosity towards her captors and a lot of complaining and just doubt about God's goodness to her. But there was a moment she remembers that she and her husband said, you know what, let's just go for it. Like, let's just, let's be positive in this. Like, let's be good. Let's look to bless our captors. And it got to be the point that, you know, in spite of the beatings and in spite of the, that they just kept showing kindness to the captors. In fact, they would say things like this to them. You are so special to God that God wanted us to come and make sure you understood about who Jesus is. I mean, it got to the point where it sounded like the captors, like, were bummed out that they had to be the ones to go, like, punish them or, like, do, you know, everything they were supposed to do. It's like, ah, they're so nice. Like, I can't go do that to them. And, and in those 13 months, four of their uh, captors became followers of Christ. But just love that mindset about, you know, God loved you so much that he put us here so that you would understand uh, who Jesus is. So affliction, affliction can be for our growth, for others' good, and it can definitely be for God's glory. So let's, let's dig into the guts now. So we looked at verse 1 and 13 of this little tangent that Paul takes us on. Let's look into the guts, and there's two, two sections we're going to look at and say, okay, Paul, what, what motivated you then like, to, to have that kind of perspective, even though you were in prison and, and facing possible death? Like, what, what kept you going. So the first one is that Paul saw himself as a steward of a mystery. Okay, let me just read it. It'll be on the screen or you can follow in your Bible. But I'm going to start again in verse 1 just so you get the flow of it. Verse 1 through 6. Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, 
a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul's talking about here a stewardship. That's when somebody entrusts something really valuable to you, you would call that a stewardship. And so Paul feels like God has really blessed him with something very special. And here he describes it as a revelation of a mystery. Okay? So um, when we hear mystery, sometimes we think like a problem that needs to be solved. Or if you've been in an escape room before, like, can we figure out the mystery so we can get out of this room before the time? Or maybe in your home, like, there's a cupboard that used to have a bunch of cookies in it that are gone. Like, how did those, like, we think a mystery, it's something like that. But when you see the word mystery in the New Testament, especially with Paul here in Ephesians, think about mystery as something that was once hidden but is now revealed that God has revealed to Paul now in a fresh way what his plan is. And so there's some themes in the Bible. You'll see that God is kind of like generally like over time revealing more and more information. And so this is one of those where if you were to read the Old Testament, you would see that God's plan is to bless all the nations of the earth. Like he said that to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and then through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that's not the new part here. But what's new here is that God is not going to just bless the nations, but the nations are going to have the same privileges as God's people did in the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament, God like had a chosen people, the nation of Israel. He set up covenants with them. He made promises with them. You know, like a special bond and relationship with them. But then after Christ's death, resurrection, and the gospel goes out, uh, the the, the ability to be in that kind of relationship with God was open, wide open, to anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, right? And so, and so that's kind of the emphasis here. That's the mystery. You see that in verse 6, where he says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Like if we were reading the Greek language there, there were three times where he's emphasizing together, together, together. Like this is no longer just Jew and Gentile or God's chosen people and everybody else, A team, B team. Like this is like, look, in Christ, anybody now becomes an heir of God, like a special relationship, sons and daughters of God. And so just like that relationship in the Old Testament was special with God in Israel, now that's like, here we go. Like it's on for every one of us. That's why like in Galatians 3.28 it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that, that's the good news. That's the mystery that Paul said, you know what, God revealed this to me. Paul was an apostle, um, a, a special person that God used to reveal more information about himself. Paul wrote half of the New Testament in that role of an apostle. So God revealed to Paul what we all needed to hear, that the gospel, this special relationship with God, is not just for Jews anymore, but it's for, it's for all of us that have faith in Jesus Christ. And so 
Um, I don't know about you, but like, is it hard for you to keep a secret sometimes? Like, it's super hard for me. You ask my kids, like, try to give them hints or try to, you know, edge them on a little bit to try to guess. I just, I have a hard time keeping a secret when something's good. Like a lot of us, the name Andrew Hancock, a lot of you guys have known Andrew over the years. He goes to North Campus now, but Andrew got engaged this week. Like, that's been a while coming. Like, people that love Andrew is like, come on, Andrew, let's go, you know? And so, so Andrew texted me, showed me pictures of the proposal. I was like, Andrew, I just got to tell people. Can I tell people? He said, yes, you can tell people. See, I'm telling you, but I texted and emailed everybody I knew. Like, it was such awesome news. So excited for Andrew and Sarah. And so, in, you know, kind of along that vein, Paul is saying, like, you know, the reason I can endure what's going on right now is that I just feel so entrusted by God that he's given me this insight into what the gospel is and that everyone can, can be full heirs of God through Jesus Christ. And that's a passion. That's something worth giving his life to. If it means he's in prison or he's free, he's going to give his life because that is such a, a stewardship. It's a message entrusted by God to him. And so let me just let you in on something I just did to you. And maybe you already knew this secret, but now we know the secret too. And so kind of the ball has been passed to us. So just like Paul had that passion to make sure this gospel goes out, we're invited into that same calling and passion. In fact, I would say an evidence that you really do understand the gospel is that you will do all you can to make sure walls come down so that no one is excluded. Like when Doug Fern preached to us last week, the topic of racism, and racism has absolutely no part in the life of a Christian. Like you look at this passage, like Paul devoted his life, so we know that everyone is invited through Jesus Christ into these blessings. So if you really understand the gospel, you are going to be all about making sure walls are coming down, that no one is left out, that no group is excluded. And even within your own context of relationships, uh, that there's no one pushed out, there's no slander, there's no gossip. Like we are all one in Christ. Let's go. And so that's one clear sign of somebody who understands the gospel. You're going to be a promoter of peace. You're going to desire and long for all to come and know who Jesus is, right? So that's one thing. Okay, Paul, how are you keeping that mindset in prison? He's like, man, I have been entrusted with an amazing mystery, and that's the gospel, okay? So one more motivation that I think Paul was able to endure and not lose heart was verse 7. It's another identity that he grabbed onto. He saw himself as a minister of the gospel. So let me read these verses to you, and then we'll, we'll talk about them quickly. So a minister of the gospel. Verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everybody what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then there's our punchline. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. All right? That's a mouthful. Like, this is another one of those, we've talked about Paul already. He loves to write super long sentences. Like, he's so passionate about this, he's stacking 
phrase upon phrase, and I was comforted this week by more than one scholar as I'm reading about this passage saying, this is a really hard passage to, to, to outline or to summarize. And I go, amen on that one. So, but let's try to do this. I want you to understand when he calls himself a minister of the gospel, to, to link that word servant next to the word minister. Okay, so he's a servant of the gospel, that for Paul, this gospel was a cause worth devoting his whole life to, serving this cause. There's a lot of great causes we could kick around in this room, like to have an amazing family, to be great parents, to have a great career, you know, to be a great Hawkeye, like to have our team do really well. Like there's a lot of causes. But guys, the supreme cause is to be a servant of the gospel, to have this message of what Jesus has done for us and embrace it for ourselves, but then make sure as many people around us as possible know that. And so that's how Paul's identifying himself. He's a servant of the gospel. So I think another sign that we really do embrace the gospel, we really do get it, is that the gospel will be our priority. Like we will see ourselves like out of all the agendas, like this one makes the most sense. Like I will devote my life to this. All those other pursuits can fit in beautifully under that one. The gospel can impact how I parent, can imp impact my marriage, can impact my career. Like, but but the, the ultimate cause Paul is saying here is that he's identifying himself as a servant, a minister of the gospel, all right? And so um, I just see four things in here. Let's break that down. What did, what did Paul mean by that? So let's talk about the privilege of ministry. Again, he called this by the grace of God. Remember, he called himself the least of all uh, the saints. Like, like Paul says, I didn't deserve this. Like this is an amazing privilege that God has given me the opportunity to be a servant of the gospel so that he was chosen by God for this. The other reason I think Paul would say I'm the least is that he would look at his past like, and if you consider what Paul used to do, he used to kill Christians, or, or at least celebrate the killing of Christians, the persecuting of Christians. So I don't know if there's a couple reasons you might right away say, well, I know this might be a privilege to be on this team, like to get to serve the gospel and be used by God, tell people, see, but I can't do it. And, and so Paul might have had that. There's parts in the New Testament where we get the idea that Paul wasn't the greatest speaker, right? He wasn't, like people were just flocking to hear his his speeches, right? There was something about him. He may have had an impediment, or, but there was something where Paul just said, I'm not a very good speaker, all right? And then Paul could link to that, and man, my past is horrible, like what I used to do. Uh, and so I don't know if that's how maybe you're coming at this this morning when I say, you know what? God is inviting you to be a servant of the gospel. Right away you might think, well, I'm not that smart. Like I can't really explain my faith, or I'm not that good on my feet. I can't really talk about this or maybe something from your past, you just need to know that this, this, this calling is a privilege that God is inviting all of us into. So it's a privilege, the privilege of ministry. But then we also need to know the power of ministry. The power isn't going to come from our capabilities or our strengths or how good or bad our past was, but our power is going to come from God. Like Paul made that very clear. It's the power of God that equipped him to do this, to be a servant of the gospel. So God knew Paul's limits in his ability to speech. God knew what could be maybe a hard thing to overcome in his past. Is that going to influence like how he's going to be able to talk about Jesus? God knew those things, but God was able to give Paul the power to do this, to be a servant of the gospel. And if there's one thing I notice about Paul's life, 
is that he was a man who was committed to prayer, right? So here's a guy, like there's a couple things in particular. We'll see this in Ephesians 6, towards the end of the whole letter. He's going to pray for, ask people to pray that he'll be bold. Would you pray that I will be bold as I share the gospel? I would think, man, if anybody did not need that prayer, it would be Paul. Because he's already been thrown in prison. He gets beaten. One time he got hit with rocks to the point where everybody thought he was dead. Like, this guy was bold. But he is asking for prayers for boldness, all right? So, so he knew he did not have the power to be bold, to be a servant of the gospel. The other thing Paul prayed for in our, what we just read is that God would illuminate the gospel to the people he's trying to share it with, that God would make it clear to them. Again, Paul's a guy that knew a lot. He wrote half the New Testament. So if there's anybody that could just say, hey, you know what, God? Don't waste your time giving me any power. Like, help out all those other people like Doug Schoenger, guys like that. Like, they need it. But, I, you know, I got this. I wrote half the New Testament. I'm pretty bold. I got this. No, Paul's the exact opposite. He knew he could do nothing without the strength of God. He knew that when he was weak, then he was strong. And so he was a man who was committed uh, to 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 prayer. So I should have said this at the beginning about this whole servant of the gospel. Let me, let me just insert this. Uh, this is an invitation for all of us to live our lives where the gospel is our top priority. So let's say we were to start stepping toward that. Who, who in your life right now would you say you're not sure? Do they really understand uh, the surpassing riches of Christ, like Paul said? Like they don't understand like how amazing it is to have Jesus. And, and so maybe be thinking about that person as first I've talked about, it's a privilege that maybe you're the one that God's going to use to introduce them or at least like show them who Jesus is. And maybe second here under this one about power, you're going to need power to do that. Like you're going to be timid. You're going to be, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to be a Bible thumper. I don't want to like, so, so the place to start is by praying. God, would you give me courage? And God, would you help them understand the gospel? All right? So I'm trying to keep us in this, not just Paul, not just history, but this is us. Okay? Here's the third one. Paul talks about the place of ministry. In verse 10, he said, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So you're going to see this theme of the church throughout the whole book of Ephesians. And what Paul is not telling us to do is like, okay, all you guys, just go rogue. Like, just go do it on your own. Like, just put your head down, and you by yourself, just go. Like, be a servant of the gospel and try to help as many people see the gospel as possible. What he's saying here is like, you guys, this isn't you. This is us. Like, this is we. Let's go do this together. Let's do this as the church. A church would be, again, not an institution, not a religious place with a bunch of rules, but a church is a gathering of people around who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He's saying, link arms, pray with each other, and then let's go. Let's serve the gospel together. Yeah, as you caught glimpses of that when the athletes were on the stage and they're talking about, you know, their Bible studies where they're with like-minded people. Okay, we're following Jesus together. We're encouraging each other. And then from that place, let's go and serve our teammates. Let's go and serve. And so, and so that's, you know, one, one key piece for us too is that as we try to be servants of the gospel, we don't do that alone. We do that together. You know, we're here on Sundays to worship, to remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done for us. And then, in a sense, we break huddle from here and we go. Or, you know, maybe a next step for you guys we keep talking about is a community group where you're with a smaller group of other couples or other, other folks 
uh, where you get together and you pray for each other and, and you study together, but, but places where you're doing this together as the church, that is so, so crucial. And the last one is that the purpose of this. What's the purpose of this ministry? And again, it was in verse 10 where, where, where Paul said, uh, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And then he uses this expression. He says, to the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly places. So um, Ephesus was a town where there were a lot of small g gods. There was a lot of belief in the powers and the spirits uh, in, in, you know, like a spiritual realm. We don't really talk about that as much in our country, in our context today, but the Bible does. Like, there is a spiritual domain. There is an enemy. Uh, there is Satan who hates you, who hates God. He tries to divide God's people. Um, he tries to get us to doubt who God is, that God's going to be good to us, that it's worth trusting God. And so the way that we just totally show the whole spiritual realm that they're just flat out wrong is, is when we come together around the gospel. And so instead of being scattered and divided and picking at each other, what God does is he does the ultimate slam dunk in their face, spikes the ball in the end zone in the face of all these adversaries and saying, look what I can do. Like I can bring a bunch of sinful, rebellious people together where they love each other, they're sacrificing for each other, and then they're going to contend as one, like a team, totally contending for the gospel, for Jesus, my son, and what he has done. Game over. Like that's, what, that's kind of what he's saying here, is that God, when, when that happens, when, when we as people unite around the gospel, sacrifice our lives so that other people can find out how good God is, so that we sacrifice our comforts to move in and help people that are suffering. We do those things. We are totally shutting down the enemy. That is totally what he is not about. And that's God, again, end zone celebration, whatever you want to call it. God saying, like, I win, right? So the cross was where that ultimately happened. Jesus died, rose again from the dead. But the way we continually remind Satan and the, the, the spiritual realm who's really in charge is when God's people together are servants of the gospel. And so Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. So, so do not lose heart, you guys, was the big point here in whatever challenge or affliction you're facing right now. So I want to just stop and give you like a minute to just kind of reflect on what we just talked about and just kind of a minute to be quiet and to maybe even think through currently what are some challenges, some adversity in your life and just ask you three questions like, uh, how can this adversity be here for my growth? How can my adversity be here for others' good? Like, how can others be blessed because I'm going through this adversity? And how can this adversity result in God getting glory? So my growth, others' good, God's glory. All right, so why don't you just take a minute and just maybe you're asking God for help now in the midst of your adversity. Maybe you're asking God to give you Paul's perspective, his identity in the face of adversity. But just go to God and just ask him for help. Ask him for power.